pull out your Bible, open to Romans 13. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Ushers are coming down the aisles, and uh, we're going to dive back into our study in Romans. When we chose the title, A Beautiful Disruption, for our series in the book of Romans, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 was one of the primary texts that we had in mind because we knew this passage is probably going to be beautifully disruptive for many people because in one paragraph, all right, Paul is going to break all kinds of rules of social etiquette and he's going to talk about politics and religion at the same time, in the same paragraph, all right? Paul did not get invited to very many dinner parties, I don't think. And not only that, Paul's actually gonna talk about how he's gonna put the two things together and say, I need to now explain how your religion, how your faith in Christ ought to inform the way that you think about politics. And in particular, how you as individual Christians, how you posture yourself towards governing authorities. How does the mercy that God has shown you change the way you respond to people who are in political authority in your, in your world? And so obviously very important passage to study. You remember at the beginning of chapter 12 when Paul rounds the corner and, he, and he, he says, now I'm gonna get real practical with the gospel. He says, I urge you therefore in view of God's mercy. He says, now I gotta talk about all the implications of God's mercy. First, Paul talked about how we should use our spiritual gifts to bless the church. Then he talked about our relationships with one another. Then he talked about how we should relate to our enemies and now, Paul, in just one little paragraph, he turns the topic to how individual Christians should posture themselves towards governing authorities. Will you look at it with me? I want to read it, and then I'm going to make some comments this morning. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. Don't speed when you're driving to that intersection with the traffic cameras, all right? And you'll have no fear of the governing authorities. My wife tells me every time I drive to one of those intersections, you know what? You wouldn't be so stressed out if you were just driving the speed limit. And I said, thank you, Spirit of Jesus in my life, Kathy McMurray. But then what happens is then I actually drive the speed limit. You know what happens to me? It turns yellow right at that awkward moment where you have a decision to make. You feel me? I'm either slamming on my brakes, I'm going to kill somebody, or I have to speed up and then the cameras go off. You can't win. Anyway, do what is good and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now look, at one level, this passage is not difficult to understand at all. It's very clear. The teaching is plain. Followers of Jesus ought to be marked by humble obedience and respect towards people who are in government positions. Christians should be the best citizens in every society. You should be able to walk into the halls of power in any society on the planet, walk into where all the authorities are, and say, tell me about the Christians in your society, and they ought to say something like, I don't necessarily agree with everything they believe or teach, but I'll tell you something right now. The Christians are great citizens. They're humble, they're peaceable, they're quiet, they're respectful. They do their very best to obey the laws of the land. And not only that, they appear to live this way intentionally because of what they believe about Jesus. Notice Paul says, submit for the sake of your conscience. This isn't just fear or obligation. Paul's saying there's something about your conscience that ought to cause individual Christians to be different than other citizens in a society. Romans 13 is not just telling us about what we should be doing. It's telling us about what our attitude and what our posture ought to be as citizens who have been impacted by the gospel. The problem with this passage is not that it's fuzzy or opaque. The problem with this passage is how plain and how unqualified Paul's statements are. The statements come across like they're absolutes with no caveats, no exceptions. And the reader's reading and going, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, what about, it's the what about, death by what abouts. You know what I mean? You read it and you think, yeah, I get this, but what about, Paul, what about evil rulers? What about wicked, wicked people who are in power? You know, Rome was filled with wicked rulers. What about laws that are, that are moronic, right? And Paul, you make these statements like, like governing authorities always reward good and they always punish evil, but you and I both know that that's not always true. I mean, we could talk to our friend Nopum in Myanmar and he would stand here and tell you, the government in my country is punishing people for doing good and rewarding those who do evil. So what about, what about, what about? So many questions. And so what I tried to do this week is I tried to put myself in your shoes. You're reading this passage. What are you thinking? You know? And I realized lots of questions that would probably be asked. There's, there's three, though, that we have to answer if we're going to apply this passage correctly. These are going to be like the, the structure of my sermon this morning. Three questions that we have to answer. Question number one, how can an incompetent government be called God's servant? Or even how could an, an immoral government be God's servant? When should Christians disobey the government? That's question two. When, if ever, should Christians be disobedient? All right? 
And then the third question is, how does Romans apply in Christians living in a democracy? You know, we, we the people, where we, we have elected officials and empowered them on our behalf. Does that change? This is where we cross the bridge from one context to another, a Roman context to a modern, secular American context. How does this apply? We need to answer that question, and I'll take a minute at the end to do that. Okay, so here, here we go. So how can incompetent or even immoral government be called God's servant? Because three times Paul says that. Look at your Bible, verse four. Paul says, he is God's servant for your good, if, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. That word is the Greek word diakonai, which is the same word that Paul uses to describe ministers in the church. Now he's taking that word, he's using it to describe governing authorities. And then verse 6, Paul says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. That's the word that was used to describe the priests in the Old Testament. Paul's taking all these religious service type words and using them to describe Governing it. Paul seems to be saying that somehow God has decided that in, in his plan for the world, you'd have the church and the church would operate and, and carry out the mission of the gospel, but God would allow governments, civic authorities, Christian or non-Christian, because in a minute I'm going to tell you there were no Christians in government when Paul wrote this, not a single one. And, and God has decided to allow secular governing authorities to carry out some of his purposes, even rewarding good and punishing evil. That's fascinating. And not only that, look at verse one. Paul says all the authority that any government has is borrowed authority. Isn't that fascinating? Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Why? Here's why. Because there's no authority except from God. And those that do exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Over and over, Paul says this. And so you say, yeah, but surely this only applies to leaders who are competent and morally upright, right? I mean, we're talking about morally upright leaders. And so to reconcile this, many Christians have tried to interpret Paul as essentially saying, when governments do good things, they're God's servants, but when they do bad things, they are not God's servants. And in that case, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> but that is absolutely what, not what's happening in this passage. And it's not what was happening in Rome. The first thing I want you to realize is that all governing authorities are incompetent compared to King Jesus. Do I need to say that again or is that clear? There's no such thing as a human person in politics who is not incompetent and slightly wicked, all right? Compared, wickedness and incompetence are relative terms <laughs> compared to Jesus. So the moment God decides to share authority with humans, incompetence and wickedness enter the equation. Some time ago, I came across an article written by John Piper, pastor and scholar, and the title of this article was How to Live Under an Unqualified President. And here was the first phrase of the article. He said, today we will inaugurate a man to be the president of the United States who is morally unqualified to be there. This is an important 
thing to say just now because not to see it and feel it will add to the collapsing vision of leadership that enabled him to be nominated and elected in the first place. Now, all of you are thinking, I wonder which president he wrote that about. Which president? Oh, let's get the juice. Hey, can I ask you a question? Does it matter? That could have been written about any president, right? And you say, not my, not my candidate, not my gal, not my, my guy, my gal is very competent. No, whoever gets elected to president, you know who my candidate is for president? Pastor Marianne Nowak. Let's get her in there, get her into office, all right? I think she'd be an amazing president. But can I tell you something? And Marianne would agree with this. If Marianne were president, somebody would write an article, how to live under an unqualified president, Right? There's a guy in our church who every year there's an election, he comes up and he's like, I did it again. I wrote you in for president. And I'm like, dude, you need to spend more time with me, all right? If I was president, the title of the article would be How to Move to Canada. But anyway, and if you were president, the title of the article would be When is Jesus Coming Back? So does it really matter? Every leader is incompetent and immoral. And somehow God in his sovereign providence can use them. I need to say something so you're crystal clear on this. When Paul wrote Romans, there was not a single Christian in politics. Not one. There was no one who had a Christian worldview. No one who had Christian morals. No one who was fighting for prayer in schools. No one who was fighting to put the Ten Commandments on the walls of power. They were, by and large, Rome, think about this, they were wicked, they were actually, at best, they were were irritated by Christians, and at worst, they were actively trying to persecute and murder them. And Paul wrote this. The emperor in Rome, when Paul sent his letter there, was a lovely man named Nero. And just to give you a taste of the kind of person he was, here's a few highlights from his leadership resume He had his mother, Agrippina, exiled and eventually assassinated within the first year of his rule because she constantly questioned all of his extramarital affairs. Then, one day, in a fit of rage, he kicked his pregnant wife to the point where she died. And he felt so bad about it later that he found a boy who looked like his wife, had him castrated, married her, and called him by his wife's name. Nero became one of the worst Christian killers in history. After a great fire burned through Rome, he blamed the Christians for the fire, even though many scholars believe he started it. He used the fire as a pretext for systematic persecution of Christians. Nero once threw a party where he lit his courtyard with burning corpses of human Christians every 30 feet, Christians on poles burning. That's how he lit his courtyard. And into that context, Paul wrote a letter saying, submit yourselves to the authorities. So incompetence, even wickedness, are not valid reasons to violate this teaching. You say, but I don't, I don't, respect, I don't respect that person's politics. I don't respect his, his political side of the aisle. I would never vote for that person. Can I tell you something? If there was a free election in Rome, Paul would not have voted for a man who burned Christians alive, all right? 
The command in verse 1, let me just look at it real quick. Let me tell you something. That command in verse 1 is built on a theological truth about God, not on a consideration of the quality of the leader. Paul basically says, here's why I want Christians to submit to governing authorities. The reason is because all that authority is coming from higher up. And somehow, and we're never going to know how this exactly works, God in his providence, in his sovereign way, he uses ruling political authorities, even ones who are ungodly. He can use them to bring about his purposes. And folks, this idea is not unique to Paul. This is all throughout the Old Testament. Daniel would say things like, God removes kings and sets up kings. God is the one who's sovereign over all this. He sets up kings, he removes kings. Daniel said, the most high rules the kingdom of man and he gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most wicked kings. He sacked Jerusalem, he burned Jerusalem. He carried many of the Jews off in exile. Do you know how God described Nebuchadnezzar? I'll just put this up, Jeremiah 27, 6. He said, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Look at that, my servant, exact same word. How can God use a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his purposes? God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Who was the most wicked ruler in history who actually punished someone who was perfectly morally good? Think about it. Paul says rulers in general reward good and punish evil. Who's the one ruler who did just the opposite? He actually punished the most perfect human being ever, Pontius Pilate, so you're saying it. You know what Pontius Pilate, he said to Jesus right before he crucified him? He said, don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And you know what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. From above. God is sovereign. God is holy. God God." In his providence, he can work through pretty good leaders, and he can even accomplish his purposes through wicked leaders. In fact, one of the greatest accomplishments for the sake of the gospel involved the most wicked act in human history, murdering and slaying the son of the living God so that human sins could be paid for on the cross. So you cannot separate the sovereignty of God from governing authorities. They just go together. They just go together. And this is why Paul concludes verse 5, Christians, you should submit because of conscience. So what does this practically mean? I'll give you a couple practical things. Practically, a couple things. Number one, it's very clear from this passage, Christian people should be people who obey the law. We should just obey the law, all right? And by the way, if you need to know, I'm preaching to myself right now. I am, I am so terrible. I feel so entitled when I'm behind the wheel of a car. I don't know why. I just become very entitled. I want to speed. I want to break rules, all right? So Kathy is watching online right now, laughing at me as I have to tell you that we should obey the laws, all right? Obey the speed limit. Wear your bike helmet. Do not cross a double yellow line to pass that slow driver. Get a permit before you cut down your tree, all right? In Portland, it, it, you don't need a permit if it's shorter than four and a half feet. In Lake Oswego, it, if it's taller than six inches, you need a permit. Sorry. 
Register your bee colony with the Oregon Department of Agriculture pursuant to ORS 602 and do not get married on an ice skating rink. Yes, that is a law in the state of Oregon. I have no idea why. Okay, there's lots of laws. And you know what? Some of them seem foolish. But in general, think about this. Most of the laws actually, if you think about it, they actually turn out for our good. Even the tree cutting stuff, which bothers me to no end, but can you imagine if there were no laws and your neighbors were just constantly cutting down trees? It would be, it would be anarchy. It would be terrible, right? So laws in general are for our good. And the beautiful thing is we happen to live in a country where if we don't like a law, we can try to get it turned over or reverted. Pay your taxes, even the art tax, all right? Just pay your taxes. Don't lie to the IRS, pay your taxes. It's a matter of conscience. And most, most convicting, show honor and respect to people in government. Whether you voted for them, whether you like their policies, Christians should be people who talk and posture ourselves with respect. Thank you. Okay, real talk. Real talk right now, all right? How did you talk about President Obama? How did you talk about President Trump? How do you talk about President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris? At dinner parties, at work, in your small group, what kinds of language comes out of your mouth? And if you had to stand before Jesus and he opened this passage, could you justify the way that you talk about political authorities? Again, you say, I don't respect them, you know? But the, but the problem is Paul, I promise you, Paul, Paul would have wanted Marianne Noack as the, as the emperor of, of Rome. I promise you, okay? He didn't get that choice. And neither do we. And Paul says, regardless, I want followers of Jesus. If there's one group of people who should be humble and use their language to show respect, it should be people who know Jesus died on a cross for my sins. Boy, oh boy. That's question number one. Question number two. This is really important. When, if ever, should Christians disobey the government? Is it ever biblically appropriate or biblically warranted for what people call civil disobedience, which is just a, 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 a direct decision, overt decision, now we need to actually disobey? My answer to this question is yes. There is biblical warrant, but it's probably warranted far less often than the average American Christian thinks. And when it happens, it should happen with an attitude and a heart posture that fits the teaching of this passage. That is to say, it should only be done with deep humility and even continued honor towards those we find ourselves having to disobey. It should never be done as we're we're sticking it to the man or we're, we're, no one's going to trample on me. It should never be done like that. And if you actually read the Bible, it never is done like that. 
at moments where Christians realize we must disobey. It's amazing. I'm going to show you in just a minute. It's done with sadness, regret, humility, even continuing to show honor. Fascinating. So this is where other texts in the Bible are illuminating, super helpful. Um, first of all, I, wanna, I want you to know that Paul's not the only person who wrote something like this. This teaching about uh, submitting to government is all over the New Testament. I'll just read a couple. Uh, Peter wrote to a completely different context, people living in a completely different place. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. Goes on. Paul wrote to Timothy. You know this passage. He said, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. By the way, again, Paul wasn't saying only pray for the competent leaders, only pray for the ones you like, only pray for the ones who, sh who share your political views. No, Paul said, pray for all of them. You should, we should, in the, in, as Christians, we should always be praying for people who, who serve in public service and government. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's basically saying the posture in, for Christians is a posture of we want to just be peaceable. We want, we want, to, we want, to, we want, we want the ability to spread the gospel. So we're praying for our governing authorities that however they lead in general, we will be able to continue to accomplish our mission, which is we want to talk about Jesus. And so we pray for them. So on the one hand, you have examples all over the Bible of Christian, of believers submitting and, and even supporting civil authorities even when they were corrupt. You have Joseph submitting to Potiphar and Pharaoh. You have Daniel and his compatriots showing great honor to Nebuchadnezzar. In a minute I'll use, I'll show how when they decided civil obedience was necessary, right? You have all these examples. But on the other hand, you have examples in the Bible of believers who courageously disobey and oppose civil authority when that authority, now listen really carefully, when that authority requires behavior of its citizens that is disobedient to God. When Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill newborn baby boys, remember this, Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh tells the midwives, kill the Hebrew boys, they said we will not, they refused to do that. Exodus tells us they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the males live. When King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all his subjects must fall down and worship a golden image, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey that. When King Darius made a decree that for 30 days nobody should pray to any god or man except himself, all right? That's what we call uh, something terrible. Anyway, he said, I don't want you praying to anybody. There's one person in the universe you can pray to, and it's me. Daniel refused to obey. This one's interesting because the command was so egregious that Daniel actually went home and he immediately disobeyed overtly. He opened his windows, he went out on his porch, 
And he said, I will never pray to a human being. He fell on his knees and he prayed to God. In other words, all of the biblical examples involve disobedience to commands that would require believers to sin. The most classic example, which actually I want you to turn to because I want you to see something. Go to Acts chapter 5. Leave Romans for just a minute. Acts chapter 5. You'll remember this story. This is the, the moment in the life of the early church when the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem commanded Peter and the rest of the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. Remember this? Acts 4. People were getting saved. It was a, it was a threat to their leadership, the, San, the Sanhedrin. They literally dragged the apostles in and said, you either stop talking about Jesus or you will be punished. And they immediately went out, had a prayer vigil, and started preaching the gospel. So in chapter 5, Acts 5, the Sanhedrin pulls Peter and the apostles in. Verse 27, Acts 5, And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Do you see that phrase? We must obey God rather than men. That right there is the strict biblical meaning of civil disobedience. Right there. If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. But again, the purpose is to demonstrate our submissiveness to God, not our defiance of government. We're not out to show how defiant we are of government. We are out to show how submitted we are to King Jesus. Amen? That's, that's the heart of the biblical teaching on this. Perhaps the single greatest articulation of civil obedience can be found in a document called The Letter from a Birmingham Jail. If you've not read this, I recommend it. Martin Luther King wrote A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. If you want to see the most astounding description of continuing to show honor and respect even in a moment when MLK knew it's time for us to defy laws that are clearly sinful, that are clearly against the heart of God. Letter from a Birmingham jail. When mask mandates came out and restrictions came out, one of the things that happened in our church is the leadership came together and we said, what are we going to do? And we prayed and we labored, we studied this passage, we talked, and we didn't all agree on all the issues. There was disagreement on our elder board about all kinds of stuff. The efficacy of masks, we disagreed on that. We disagreed on the mortality re records. We, there were all kinds of things we talked about. But at the end of the day, as we studied this passage, and did we get it all right? No. I'm sure we did not. We're human beings, all right? We're incompetent, and we're wicked as well, okay? We're just doing our best. We prayed. We humbled ourselves. We got on our knees. There was one thing we were absolutely unanimous about. 
No one is asking us to do anything right now that's sinful towards God. We're not being asked to disobey God. And so we're going to continue to comply. And the reason we're going to continue to comply is because, and this was something I was really passionate about, I know there is a day coming when laws will be passed that I will have to defy. And I only want to play that card when it actually matters. Folks, there's a day coming when it will be illegal for a pastor to stand behind the pulpit and teach biblical truth. Talk about God's definition of sexuality or the definition of marriage. To preach Christ. There's a day coming where I could go to jail for opening the Bible and teaching Christian ethics. And I want you to know something. When that day comes, I will be the happiest prisoner on the planet. I will go to jail shouting and clapping and praising Jesus because I'll know my conscience is clear before Christ. I waited till I knew I was being asked to do something that God strictly commands me to do. Amen? Amen. The bar should be high. If the government ever forced us to be silent about the gospel, we would disobey. But you know what? We would do it with humility and grieving and prayer. Question number three, and then I'm done. I'm going to only take a minute on this couple minutes on this one. This one does matter, though. How does Romans 13 apply to Christians uh, living in a democracy? Okay? And um, so this gets asked in a lot of different ways, and there's been a lot written about it recently, but, but it, it goes something like this. You know, in the United States, um, we don't have pharaohs or, or Caesars or emperors. We have elected officials. We have governors and presidents and and they're put in office by we the people. And not only that, we have a constitution with a bill of rights. And so our government derives its power from the consent of the people. So the question, the natural question is, what does that look like then? Who's the, who's the actual authority in that context? Okay. And what I would argue is it doesn't actually change very much. For one thing, the bottom line is we all know that our elected officials do have authority, and they use that authority. Judges, police officers, governors, presidents, senators have authority, they, they, and they exert that authority. And so the, the term that Paul uses specifically is people who are in positions of authority. We are to be submitted to them. But I would also argue that actually, because of our very unique form of government, the Constitution actually provides citizens of the United States, different levers, political mechanisms that we can pull when we actually do encounter laws or behaviors by governing authorities that we think are completely ungodly and unbiblical. There are all these channels that we can pursue because we live in a democratic society to try to change that before we would ever have to engage in civil disobedience. But here's the one I most want to talk about. This is really important. There are some people saying now recently that the United States of America was founded as a Christian nation and that because of that, and I agree, just stay with me, that because of that, we only have to submit to the government if they continue to function in a way that reflects Christian values. So what they're doing recently 
is they're justifying insubordination because they see it as the right and even the responsibility of Christians to take back the government if it begins to stray from its perceived Christian values. This is what many are referring to as Christian nationalism. And there are many problems with this. I'm very disturbed by this whole thing, Christian nationalism. For one thing, the United States of America is not a theocracy. It's a democratic republic. I know you didn't come for a politics education, but I have to talk about this. We're not a theocracy, meaning the church is not in charge. This is a democratic republic, which means that those in power are supposed to function as representatives of the electorate. If the majority of the people are Christians, then it would stand to reason the representatives would likely reflect, reflect Christian values. But if the majority of the people are not Christians and we're becoming increasingly post-Christian, then it would stand to reason that, that many of the officials would not reflect Christian values. Either way, in the church, if we want our government to reflect Christian values, the number one thing we should do is love people in the name of Jesus, share the gospel, and pray for the, the regeneration of human hearts so that more and more people actually love. This is called not a top-down enforcing Christianity on a society, but the way Jesus describes it in the gospels, a bottom-up, humble spread of the kingdom. You remember how Jesus talked about the kingdom? He said the kingdom is like a mustard seed. So humble. So small. It just, it spreads. And you can't even perceive that it's spreading, but it's very powerful. It spreads through the humble, gentle, godly, patient, respectful behavior and preaching of people who love Jesus. Jesus would take children, he would put them on his knee, and he would say, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. Because my kingdom is for people who are humble and broken. Can I ask you a question this morning? Does God need Christians to have political power in order for the gospel to spread? I hope your answer to that is no. Because most of the time in human history, including right now in our world, the gospel spreads most quickly when Christians don't have political power. You know where the gospel is spreading the most quickly right now in our world? China, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, North Korea. The gospel is blazing through those nations as the Christians in those nations genuinely struggle with how do we live under tyrannical leadership that hates Christianity. And God says, doesn't matter to me, gospel's just going to spread like wildfire, wildfire. And so I leave you with a song that we sing around here. We'll go to the table with the words of this song. It's this beautiful song about the kingdom. Remember the song, Simple Kingdom, we've been singing? I'm going to have the worship team come and just remember the lyric of this song. Your kingdom is backwards. It flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, the world calls a curse. The small become great, the last become first. Your kingdom is backwards. Lord, teach us to serve. Your kingdom is humble. It flows, oh, as humble as death. 
The king is a savior who gave his last breath. So may we die daily, our pride laid to rest. Your kingdom is humble and the broken are blessed. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to be people who look like Jesus to our world, who think like Jesus, who speak like Jesus, who behave like Jesus, who carry around thoughts and attitudes like Jesus, who treat people like Jesus who think about power like Jesus and who long for the spread of the gospel like Jesus. At the end of the day, we just want to be like Jesus. Are we going to get it right all the time? Absolutely not. We're going to blow it again and again and again, but by your grace, may we be a church that looks like Jesus in everything, in the way we treat each other, in the way we treat our enemies, in the way we use our gifts, and even, Lord God, in the way we respond to governing authorities. Not for our glory, not for our reputation, but for the reputation of Christ and for the spread of the gospel. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everybody say, amen.